You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 13. We'll be in 1 Samuel 13 this morning. We began 1 Samuel with uh, well, at a low point in the history of God's people. And we've seen the rise of Samuel as God's prophet and uh, mouthpiece in many ways. And we've seen the rise of Israel's first king, Saul, who's been... Uh, somewhat of a questionable figure thus far, and here in chapter 13 uh, will be a significant point in his life where things will turn. 1 Samuel 13, 1 through 23. Saul was uh, an unknown number years old when he began to reign, and he reigned an unknown number and two years over Israel. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gebeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Bethaven, When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gebeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Gebeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, to the land of Shual. 
Another company turned toward Beth Horon, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, Let the Hebrews make themselves swords and spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrisons of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take these words that are the very words of God, teach us about our own hearts, teach us about your faithfulness, teach us about your might. Lord, I pray that you would help our faith to grow pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few chapters earlier, the people of Israel were warned that if they got a king, the king would be selfish. That he'll take your sons and daughters, he'll take your fields, he'll take your donkeys, he'll take your vineyards, and he will selfishly build himself a kingdom. This is what the kings of earth do. They become proud. Kingship is prone to pride. We have a good example of this. There's, there was a good example of this in Scotland when James the sixth who was notoriously rude when attending worship services, on one occasion came into the worship service, was seated in the gallery with his couriers while Robert Bruce preached. In his usual form, James began to talk to those around him during the sermon. Bruce paused and the king fell silent. The minister resumed and so did James. Bruce sees speaking a second time. Same result. When the king committed his third offense, Bruce turned and addressed James directly. It is said to have been an expression of the wisest kings. When the lion roars, all the beasts of the fields are quiet. The lion of the tribe of Judah is now roaring in the voice of his gospel, and it becomes all the petty kings of the earth to be silent. Kings can easily forget that they're subjects of the Almighty God. As we'll see much more subtly in Saul, maybe you'll be more sympathetic for Saul than James the sixth of Scotland. 
the tendency for kings to rely on the wisdom of man rather than their Creator. The main charge I want to give you this morning is to trust in the Lord and listen to His Word no matter what the circumstances of life brings. I'll say that again. Trust in the Lord and listen to His Word no matter what the circumstances of life brings. Now, as we come to this text, I believe that if you understand it, and if you put yourself in the shoes of those participating in this passage, your faith will be strengthened. Paul says, faith comes by hearing. And that hearing comes from the Word of the Lord. And as we study this passage, I just felt this week a strengthening in my God. And I hope you feel the same thing. One of the things we'll recognize all the way through First and Second Samuel is a juxtaposition between the faithful and the faithless. In a sense, you could say the seed of the woman promised way back in Genesis to be the faithful delivering one and the seed of the serpent, the faithless one. All throughout the Bible, you can see this theme that culminates with Jesus Christ being the seed of the woman. But through First and Second Samuel, if you remember, it began with Peninnah and Hannah. With Hannah being the woman of faith. And then you see Eli and his wicked sons and Samuel, the chosen one of God and the one that is blessed by God. And in this passage, we begin to see a juxtaposition where we've already seen a juxtaposition from Samuel to Saul. We've already got hints that Saul is a coward when he was hiding in the baggage when Samuel was making him king. And in this passage, we're going to see Saul in comparison to Jonathan which is then going to transfer to the main distinction, which is Saul and David. And so as we look at this, I want you to consider, you, you could take First and Second Samuel and you could read these, and one of the things you're supposed to see is the people who live by faith are the ones who are protected by God. And the people who do what the world would do according to human wisdom will be the ones that are rejected and not protected by the Lord. And so let's first begin. I'll just deal with the issue in verse 1. If you have the NIV, it says that Saul was 
30 years old at this time, and that he reigned for 40 years. And if you have an ESV, as Scott read, it says we don't know the what exactly verse 1, Saul was blank years old when he began to reign, and he reigned blank and two years over Israel. Well, the issue here is in the original manuscripts in the Hebrew, we're missing these numbers. And so to plug any numbers in here is to guess. And one of the reasons the SV guesses what it does is because in Acts 13, verse 21, we read this, Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. All right? Saul, probably the best thing to do here is to not guess, just recognize God's given us everything we need to know. This doesn't affect the meaning of this passage at all. So if you're wondering why your Bibles may differ there, it goes back to the Hebrew manuscripts. With that said, what is going on in Israel? I want you to, in a sense, enter this story. Is it, you know, we can read this stuff like we don't have any skin in the game and we miss the point of the text. I want you to picture to be an Israelite soldier. I want you to picture what it would be like being in Saul's shoes. And so right at the beginning, we see Saul splits up 3,000 men. He sent everyone else home, but he splits 3,000 men up. Saul takes 2,000 with himself and goes to Michmash. Now, if we can get the map up here, this is helpful to see kind of locations. So right up here we can see Michmash, and that's where Saul is. And we find that uh, Jonathan took a thousand soldiers and went to Gibeah. So Gibeah's right here. That's about five miles away. Geba here is a mile and a half from Michmash. And you're in the mountains. You can see the mountains here. You can see a valley that goes right through here. And Michmash is right in this important pass for Israel. There's a big highway that goes up to Oprah that goes right through this pass. And for the Israelites to travel north and south during this mountain region, you have to travel along this highway. And so Saul and Jonathan are ready to attack the garrison of the the Philistines um, in Geba. Now, the Philistines mainly are to the east and along 
the shore, in the flatland, and the Israelites are in the mountain region. But they have an administrative headquarters in the middle of Israel with one of their governors in Geba. And that causes the Israelites to be uneasy. As you already heard, the Israelites have to go get their farming equipment sharpened from the Philistines. These Philistines are a thorn in Israel's side. And we see Saul take 2,000 soldiers, go to Michmash, and he sends Jonathan to Gibeah, whom then moves in on Geba and defeats this governor. Now, my first feeling is, if I have a son, am I going to take 2,000 troops with me and send 1,000 troops with my son? That's, that's the first thing I see here. And then notice in verse 3, after Jonathan beats this garrison, garrison of the Philistines, after he takes him down, Saul puts out a press release to all of Israel. And what does Israel hear from this? Look at verse 3. And Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew a trumpet throughout the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said, Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And so the press release that goes out is, Saul did it! Saul defeated him. And we begin to see the character start to come through in Saul. Well, here's what happens. All the Philistines hear what had happened and they're furious. And what Saul and Jonathan could have never expected happened. They knew that the that they were going to have a retaliation. And so right away, Saul calls to Gilgal, calls all Israel to Gilgal to come prepare for this retaliation. What they couldn't have expected is how furious they were. The Philistines shock Israel with 3,000 chariots. So just, so just get the picture here. Imagine seeing 3,000 chariots coming towards you with 6,000 horsemen and soldiers numerous as the sand of the seashores. And it says that they gather at Michmash, Saul's previous military headquarters or staging area. This is tit for tat. You're going to take out our staging area in Geba? We will take out Saul's previous one at Michmash. And not only will we take them out, but we're coming fully loaded. So just put yourself in Saul's shoes for a minute. You're leading Israel. You could have never imagined that this big army would be coming at you. 
Imagine being a soldier in the army. And what happens as a result of this? What's Israel's response? Look at verses 6 and 7. Some of the soldiers saw sure destruction and they went and hid themselves in the caves and in the cracks of the mountains. Forget this, there's zero chance. Others, it says in verse 7, leave the promised land. They head east. They go over the Jordan and they're just out of here. There is no way we're going to win. Now you're Saul. Imagine this. Your army has just dispersed. And the ones that have followed you to Gilgal were trembling with fear. So, your faithful ones have no confidence. And Saul is waiting at Gilgal for Samuel. He can't wait any longer. He knows he's supposed to. He can't wait any longer until Samuel comes So he offers up a burnt offering before he can offer up the peace offering Samuel comes. So get the picture here. First of all, point one in your notes is expect God to work through unlikely people. God uses Jonathan with 1,000 men to conquer Geba. Secondly, Expect God to save in unlikely circumstances. The very thing Saul doesn't do here. And my question is, can we really blame Saul? I mean, look at his, look, look at his response. Here's what, here's what Saul says. First of all, Samuel comes. He just brings the burnt offering. He offers it up. And sure enough, as soon as he offers it, Samuel comes walking to him. You would expect maybe a nice cordial greeting. The first words out of Samuel's mouth, what have you done? What have you done, Saul? You've been foolish. You've acted like a fool. He says, But is it really foolish? I mean, here, Saul's response is threefold. He says, the soldiers all took off and scattered when the Philistines were coming. Not only that, you weren't on time in coming. And do you see how big that army is? And what he says is amazing when he says, uh, In verse uh, 12, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. I mean, look at this. He doesn't dare go into battle without the Lord on his side. Yes, he didn't wait for Samuel, but he doesn't dare try to fight without the Lord 
But Samuel says, what you did was foolish. You acted like a fool. And he pronounces a harsh judgment. And I can't help but sit here and say, what if your skin was in the game? What if you were one of the soldiers? What if you were Saul? I mean, he waited for Samuel as long as he felt he possibly could, and then he wanted to, he forced himself to bring God into the equation. Well, there's a few things we can learn here, I think. First of all, your tendency and my tendency to deserve, to practically live according to human wisdom is at its most extreme pressure when people are deserting you. The hardest time for you to follow God's Word will be when those around you begin to desert you. And when they begin to leave. The second thing is when you'll find out how your faith is when your life is on the line. You'll find out what you're made of. You can sit there and think tough of yourself about how well you would respond to circumstances, but I wonder what you would have done if you were Saul. So what did Saul do so wrong? What was so wrong with what he did? Well, commentators come up with several theories here. The first one, maybe the most uh, well-accepted one, believes that back in chapter 10, verses 7 and 8, that Saul broke this command. If you want to turn back there, 1 Samuel 10, verses 7 through 8. Samuel said, after he just revealed to Saul that he's going to be king, he says in verse 7, Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So he says, you're king, but you've got to wait on the prophet's word. And some people think that seven days earlier, chapter 10 happened. Other people say, well, there's no way what's happened between chapter 10 and chapter 13 could be in the course of seven days when he fights uh, Nahash the Ammonite. And so they say, no, uh, or so some say it's seven days. Others say, well, it's not seven days. It's probably a couple years, but Samuel must have given him a similar statement because what's clear from the passage is he broke the Lord's command. Others say that what he broke was the priestly command in Numbers 18.7 where it said, 
where it says, and you and your sons with you shall guard the priesthood for all that concerns the altar that that is within the veil, and you shall serve. I give your priesthood as a gift, and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. So some say, well, the thing that he broke was he didn't wait for Samuel, the priest, to come and do the offering. Others say, well, the thing he broke is the fact that a king, Israel's king, is always supposed to talk to the prophet and get guidance for the Lord. So whichever one of those you think it is, the point is Samuel didn't, or Saul didn't obey Samuel. And because of this, the kingdom is going to be ripped from him. Look at uh, <clears throat> look. Con- consider this for a second. Saul put his confidence in the burnt offering, did he not? He thought, "I can't go into battle without the burnt offering," but he neglected God's word. It's easy to do this to use, a, in a sense, the spiritual sign and deny the spiritual word. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He said you missed the main point, and that's what Saul has missed here. Saul should have realized that without the Word of the Lord, he had no hope at all. Remember what the prophet Amos says in Amos 8, verses 11 and 12? He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor of thirst of water, but of hearing, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the lord but they shall not find it and i ask the question to you how do you view the word of god do you view it as the very most important thing that you need in the most difficult circumstances of your life are you like those in Amos that if you didn't have the Word, it would be the worst thing ever. You seek to and fro to have a Word from the Lord. Are you, are you satisfied with the religious trappings of Christianity without the Word to guide your life? It seems like this was Saul's problem. He didn't obey the Word of God. He didn't realize that the king of Israel was under the prophet who gives the Word of God. There's two consequences for this. The first one is Saul's dynasty has ended before it got off the ground. Look at verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the command of, of the Lord your God with which He commanded you. 
For then the Lord will, would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. So your dynasty is done, he says, long term. And then immediately, he's the consequence is this. The Lord has sought out for a sought sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Your dynasty is not continuing, and I'm already sought out another man after the Lord's heart. Well, what does that mean? It can mean one of two things. And I think both are true, but I'll tell you which one I think it means. What does it mean that David was a man after God's own heart? It could mean that David was a man who had a heart like God that was more faithful, unlike Saul. In a sense, that's true of David. But I think in the context of 1 Samuel, what it means is this. Israel... You chose a king, or you wanted a king like the nations, and I gave you one. But now, I'm going to choose a king that's my choice, not like the nations. This king is after my heart. Your heart was after this type of king. Now my heart is giving you the king I want you to have. And so we see this little glimpse of another king that is going to be unlike Saul that will obey the Word of the Lord. Saul, in a sense, is displaying an Adam-like sinful nature. Both of them are heads of social institutions. Both violated commands given by the Lord. Both expressed an unwillingness to take responsibility for their sin. Right away, Saul has three excuses which, by the way, seem on the surface to be reasonable. But they're not when God's Word is always true and God is always faithful. Now let's look at the saddest point of this story. Look at verse 15. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. And the rest of the people went after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. This is sad because as far as we can tell in the text, Samuel didn't offer up any offering. He said, you've acted foolishly. And he walked away and he went to Gilgal. And Saul, what's he left to do? To turn around and count how many men he has with him. The best Saul can do once the Word of the Lord leaves him is to count men. To see how well they can do now. And so I want you to feel the sadness of 
approaching life apart from the Word of God? What hope do you and I have when the enemy gathers on the mountain across the valley if the Word of God is gone? Well, the best thing you can do is what the world does every day of their life. They look around at their resources and they become pragmatic and they got to figure out the best possible way of salvation without God, without God's guidance. It's a sad verse, verse 15, as the Word of God is left Saul. And then on their way, they go to Gibeah. And on their way to Gibeah, they stay in Geba. And the Philistines were across the valley in Michmash. I mean, I'd love to go see this. I'd love to sit on this side of the valley, on the mountain, and hear Saul and Jonathan and 600 men looking at the Philistine army right across the valley. And then, it says they sent out raiders to the north to Ophrah, to the west to Beth Haran, and to the east towards the valley of Zoboim. And the garrison went to the pass of Mishmash. Here's what they did. They sent raiders on every major road from Michmash on. So if anyone was going to bring help for Israel from the north, where so many of their people would be, every major highway is cut off by these raiders. If they come from the east, if they come from the west, if they come from the north, so 600 men of Israel are doomed. So it looks. No hope, so it seems. None of Israel's troops have weapons. Can you imagine? They have chariots. They have horsemen. There's, as far as we can tell, there's two swords with these 600 men. Saul, Saul's sword and Jonathan's sword. What chance does Israel have? What hope does Israel have? Things look absolutely bleak for Israel. But the fourth point is a key point. Helplessness is not hopelessness. It may be the beginning of hope. What has God done thus far? When Israel is cut off from the arm of the flesh, when there is no way forward, and Men are humbled before the Lord. God acts. The temptation is to go preach chapter 14 right now. Because you're going to see the unthinkable happen in chapter 14. We're going to watch Jonathan walk over that hill, him and his armor bearer. Two guys. One sword. And somehow Israel's coming out on the other end of this thing with victory. But I wonder in your life when things get tough, 
Maybe you have a fear about something. If your first response is to look around and count troops and start to figure out how in the world you're going to survive. And then you might even say something like this. Well, I don't know. Looks hopeless. All as I can do is pray now. All you can do is pray. As though the last straw where we put our least amount of confidence in is the Lord. I don't know if you can be like that, but I can be like that. I can. I mean, I'll tell you how I'm living through it right now. Three weeks I go to Africa, to Niger. In two weeks is their election. Every time there's election there, terrorism starts to happen. And where's the headquarters of Niger? The city where I'm going. And so I text Mark, how are things going over there? And he doesn't send me back a nice, comfortable response. But by the grace of God, I get to read chapter 13. And I get to say, what do I have to fear if God is the God of Israel, is the same God I pray to now? Have I ever experienced what Israel seemed to go through month by month, fearing sure destruction from the enemy? Have I ever experienced even an inkling of what Saul felt? And so I cherish chapters of the Bible that show me my Lord. And show me helpless people. Because when they're totally helpless is when salvation can come. The only person that can be saved is the one who finally gives up all hope of saving himself. And the hope in this passage is in this other type of king, not like Saul, someone more like Jonathan, someone more like David, but someone even more perfect than them. King Christ, who what did He do when He was down here? He said, I don't speak on my own behalf. I speak only the words my Father has given me. He was the only one, the only King that always relied on the Word of God. And so when I fail at it, and when you fail at it, I can find comfort in a King who never failed, who carries my righteousness for me, puts His righteous robe around me. That's where hope can be. It's no wonder in the Sermon on the Mount, as Christ lays out the laws of His kingdom, He says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That means literally, blessed are the beggars, the helpless, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Those who recognize they have nothing and begin to mourn over their absolute, devastating helplessness in their sin. For they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek 
for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Who does that? People that don't have righteousness. Don't have any hope. For they shall be satisfied. And the person who receives that sort of mercy, it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a lot of hope knowing that hope comes from helplessness. Because if you literally stand before a holy God, you're at a helpless state in need of Christ. Father, I know my faith has never been tested like the Israelites' faith was tested. Lord, I know that I've never been at the point of sure destruction. But Lord, I pray that Your goodness and Your faithfulness will be ready on my mind when that day comes. Every one of us is going to get a phone call. Every one of us is going to face a terrifying moment. Lord, I pray that by the grace of God, You would make us people who see Christ as our King. Who see the sureness of our resurrection even when suffering is at the door. Lord, I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.